Swords. In my coverage of Ten of Swords creation, I asked if you'd all be interested in a follow-up Kraken Krakoa episode on the history of the swords in this event, and the answer was a resounding yes. Swords. More swords. Today I'll answer. What are the ten swords mutant kind will use in their battle against the forces of Amenth in Ten of Swords? What's the marble history of each blade, and what can it tell us about the story to come? What small clues do we have about the Arakan forces named swords so far, and theories and predictions for what's to come in this mega X-Men event crossover of 2020? Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening to Kraken Krakoa number 94, the history of all the swords in Ten of Swords. Spoilers for Discuss Comics will definitely follow. And hey, before we get into this, if you like the comic book Herald YouTube channel or Kraken Krakoa, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. It helps me a great deal and definitely encourages me to keep making more of these videos. In Ten of Swords creation, the event's first part, Saturnine, the Omniversal Majestrix, freezes the Krakoa vs. Orocco Mutant War to set them up for a tournament of champions in which each side will wield ten majestic blades. All the swords get named, and based on Marvel's promotional art, we can align the blades to individual characters, who I will talk through here on the X-Men side of things. So we get the Krakoan swords named, those are the X-Men and the mutants that we're familiar with. We also get Arakan blades named, uh, Arako is the other half of Krakoa that was lost to the dimension of Amenth way back when. We don't know as much about those characters or about those swords, but I will talk through maybe some hints and theories about names as I talk through primarily focusing on the X-Swords in the uh, order that they were named in the event. One thing you'll notice about a majority of the known swords is that they tend to be broken, missing, or in some way altered prior to their re-emergence here in Ten of Swords. There are exceptions, of course. For example, we've already seen both the Sword of Might and the Light of Galador return in the Dawn of X, but otherwise I'm expecting some early parts of Ten of Swords to deal with the gathering and retrieval of these weapons, or at least the explanation for how they are already in hand. Epic quests should most definitely ensue. I expect, you know, a lot of these early parts will be about, again, finding and gathering the swords before the true tournament of champions, as the X-Men have their ten sword bearers, or nine as we'll talk about, and Araco has their ten, and they face off. So, Muramasa Blade. While it's probably most known at this point as a sword that can shut off Wolverine's healing factor and very much kill him, or anyone with the healing factor, the Muramasa is actually the surname of an immortal Japanese swordmaker who came to prominence in the real world and in Marvel history in the 1500s. Again, this is very much based on a real person, but Marvel's Muramasa fully leans into myths around the swordmaker, categorizing him as both immortal and increasingly mad, with obsession over making the perfect, sometimes demonic blades. Truly, the thing that he seems to care about the most is just making making the perfect sword. The first reference to Muramasa's blades actually runs back to Wolverine's second solo series, the first lengthy ongoing, the Wolverine title that launched in 1988, with Chris Claremont writing and John Buscema on pencils. In the first three issues of the title, we encounter Muramasa's Black Blade, a cursed weapon that controls its wielder. First, Jessica Drew, aka Spider-Woman, is possessed by the blade on Madripoor, and then ultimately it takes over Wolverine. At the end of the day, the Silver Samurai collects the blade and is not possessed in a super big time move as he declares that he is the honorable and most rightful wielder of the Black Blade. 
The Swordmaker returned to prominence following the events of Marvel's House of M event when Wolverine recovered all his memories in the event's aftermath. We learn that after the slaughter of his wife and unborn child, at the hands of the Winter Soldier no less, that Wolverine turned to Miramasa to make him a blade fully for the purposes of revenge, to, and I quote with a Metallica riff behind me, kill them all. Thus, the Miramasa blade with fragments of Wolverine's soul, soul excuse me, was created, and it's this blade that he that has posed a danger to mutants with healing factors ever since. Indeed, at one point, Dakan integrated the sword into his claws in order to kill his father. Logan cut them out of his hands, and Wolvie, you know, later used the sword to cut off Sabretooth's head. Although, like so many Marvel deaths, it got better. Like, over time, obviously we've seen uh, Sabretooth since that time. Most recently in the pages of all-new Wolverine number 27 to 28, Laura Kinney, Wolverine, and Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, are tricked into giving up the location of the Muramasa Blade, which was then turned into Wolverine-killing bullets by the Orphans of X. The bullets are used to shoot through Dakan in a wound that won't heal, but surgeons can cut around the wound to let his healing factor take effect for a larger wound in some great comic book science. To combat this threat, Laura visits Muramasa himself and had a new Muramasa armor forged from soul fragments of Logan, Dakan, and herself. This will come up later, but there's also a brief connection in these issues between Miramasa and Gorgon, with Gorgon owing the Swordmaster a piece of himself for a new blade. This could come up again given Gorgon's inclusion in this event and his ties to the epic Swordmaster. One of the highlights of the named Arako Swords is that A, Miramasa Blade, exists on both sides of the aisle. So on the Krakoa side, we certainly, the assumption is that, you know, one will be wielded by Wolverine, but the other, the expectation, is it will be wielded, wielded by his newly announced upcoming arch enemy in the making Solemn, which is an anagram for moles, which means nothing, but makes me laugh at the idea of that being his name instead. There's a possibility that this could mean one of them begins wielding the Miramasa Blade, and then the other obtains it for a time, effectively that it switches hands. That would be the simplest explanation. But it's also possible that somehow Miramasa made it to Arako, or that he was immortal enough to have known Solemn before those mutants fell, right? Like, we come to know him in the 1500s, but could the Swordmaster actually have existed much longer than that? I'd be curious, definitely, to figure out how it is that Solemn gets one of these blades in his hand, because, again, like, it's not... There is a Miramasa blade that is specific to Wolverine's soul fragments, but this is a Swordmaster who makes lots of swords. It's it's not impossible that Solemn could have a different variation from the same sword maker. The next sword on the list is the Sword of Might. The Sword of Might has been a part of the Captain Britain mythos since inception in 1976. In that regard, it's actually the sword here with the longest Marvel Comics history. In his origin, Brian Braddock is given a choice by Merlin and Roma between the Amulet of Right and the Sword of Might. He chooses the Amulet of Right, and over time we've learned that most omniversal Captain Britons make this selection in order to inherit their power, right? It's seen as essentially choosing something uh, less violent, less, less obviously meant to kill, is kind of the right choice to make, although certainly there are exceptions. One of the biggest misconceptions about the Sword of Might, one that Marvel itself is guilty of, is the assumption that it's the same sword in the stone as Excalibur. This is not correct, at least if we're to believe Captain Britain in MI13, aka my favorite Captain Britain series that you can actually read on Marvel Unlimited. In this series by Paul Cornell and Leonard Kirk, Excalibur and the Sword of Might are clearly referenced as separate entities with separate properties applied to each. In this instance, the Sword of Might is used by the invading Skrull army to merge with other magical items into an all-powerful Skrull chain as they attempt to take over magic as part of Marvel's secret invasion event. 
We've actually seen a lot of the Sword of Might already in the Dawn of X, particularly in the first arc of Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe's Excalibur. After his possession by Morgan Le Fay, Brian Braddock gives the Amulet of Right to Betsy, thus making her the new Captain Britain, and chooses the Sword of Might as his dark weapon. Even after his revival at the hands of his brother Jamie, something we really should be keeping an eye on, Brian continues to dream of Merlin and Roma selecting the Path of Violence, aka the Sword of Might. This has left Brian Braddock pretty broken, last we've seen of him in the Dawn of X, as he is literally in tears and, and about you know the fact that his life has now been ruined by this uh, uh, kind of corruption of his soul and really what made Brian you know separate, what made him unique. This is where we enter some interesting questions about the inclusion of Brian Braddock in Ten of Swords. He's broken, angry, and quite changed from the Captain Britain we've known throughout Marvel. It makes sense that he'd still feel a duty to the realm of Otherworld and want to protect his sister and her allies, but again, he's still not actually of Krakoa. I'm willing to bet here that Jamie brought Brian back as a mutant this time, if for no other reason than to mess with him. More likely, though, this is part of a deliberate scheme by Apocalypse. It seems certain that Apocalypse helped Jamie Braddock take the throne of Otherworld's Avalon with some rationale behind the decision. And who better than an Omega-level reality-warping mutant to toy with the mutant protection of the Braddock family, a protection that you know of Otherworld that runs through generations. There have like kind of always been Braddocks protecting Otherworld, at least as far as we kind of understand it, or, or for a very long time. I think potentially Brian's got Betsy is a mutant, Jamie's a mutant. I think Jamie messed with him to make him a mutant as well, and I think we're going to find that out in this event. The next swords on the list are Grasscutter and Godkiller, and I believe these will both belong to Gorgon. Grasscutter and Godkiller are of a piece crafted for war between Japanese and Greek gods way back when. While they don't debut in its pages, the history of the swords is most memorably showcased in the Jonathan Hickman written Secret Warriors. Now, these are, I think, the swords that are most specifically referenced and utilized in kind of the Hickman Marvelverse, uh, which I think you know means we should probably pay closer attention to them given his uh, status co-writing and obviously co-writing this event and obviously leading you know the the office of x he is the head of x after all in secret warriors grass cutter is wielded by alexander aka phobos the god of fear of uh, the greek god of fear the boy god actually used the blade to murder his own father Ares in the pages of the 2006 miniseries called Ares. and in secret warriors the blade is stained red with the blood of the god of war Godkiller is gifted to Gorgon, on his half, by the mysterious Hydra-allied Kraken. Ultimately, Phobos and Gorgon have an epic sword fight in which both Godkiller and Grasscutter are shattered, although Gorgon uses the shattered hilt of Godkiller to seemingly kill Phobos. So again, in Secret Warriors, these swords get a lot of talk, they get used pretty epically, uh, but they both do break pretty, pretty notably in that fight between Gorgon and Phobos. At some point in this event, it may be worth thinking deeper into the character of Gorgon, whose Marvel history includes almost incalculable murder and leading several factions of Hydra. Gorgon's mutant amnesty on Krakoa is one thing, but his inclusion as a captain is a much bigger deal than I've made of it so far. I'll also note here that in X-Men number 4, it's pointed out that Gorgon's captainship is dedicated to protecting members of the Quiet Council, specifically the Autumn Leaders, Magneto, Professor, and Apocalypse. Yet in Tenosaur's creation, Apocalypse wanders into Otherworld without Gorgon as part of the Fellowship. It's kind of a weird oversight. While I don't know if Gorgon already has Grasscutter and Godkiller remade, this certainly seems like a task of Forge's Alley. He's shown wielding two blades in the pages of X-Men number 4, when he maims and amputates human military forces during the Autumn Council's business meeting. So we know he's definitely still wielding two blades. Are these still Grasscutter and Godkiller? That remains to be seen. Again, last we saw, the blades were in fact broken. 
Gorgon's possession of both blades is based on all these connections and the Marvel key art that features him among the Krakoa 9, wielding one sword in each hand. This does raise the question though, if Krakoa is missing a sword bearer, that would put them kind of at a deficit compared to the Arako mutants, right? So Krakoa has 10 swords named, but only nine individuals if Gorgon is using two of these swords. Arako, on the other hand, has 10 sword bearers defined. So this kind of leaves me wondering if there is a 10th sword bearer on the mutant side that could actually be a part of this event. One option given creation is of course, could this actually be sword the acronyms role to come in as a quote unquote 10th sword bearer? I don't know, it'll be interesting to see like, is this something that needs to get filled out? Because again, we have 10 blades, but only nine individuals. That isn't a one-on-one -on -one tournament style fight that is necessarily going to work as, as potent and mighty and violent and destructive as Gorgon might be with those two blades. The next play named is the Warlock Sword. So since the Technarch ally Warlock can transform himself into virtually anything, uh, Doug Ramsey, aka Cypher, wielding Warlock as his sword makes plenty of sense. The Team Supreme have been combining their might since forming a bond in the mid-1980s New Mutant series, with Doug frequently wielding Warlock as his armor, given his own vulnerabilities in combat situations, right? They become kind of best pals, really like literally bonded in a way that uh, no one else on the New Mutants can quite get to, and, and they work together all the time. Doug uses an armor, uses him skateboard, whatever he needs. We've actually seen this very recently in Giant Size Storm with Doug wielding a warlock mech suit in the world. I questioned this at the time, but this is actually kind of odd because the previous two appearances of Warlock in X-Men number seven and Giant Size Nightcrawler, it was clearly a secret that Warlock was around. Doug even made magic swear not to tell anyone in that Giant Size Nightcrawler issue. And now here he is well past that point without any explanation given, just kind of out in the open, as much as you know, out in the open you can be in the world, like certainly Storm and uh, I think Monet would have seen this. So there's definitely something we need to get explained there why that's not a secret anymore. I'm also interested in Warlock's impact on mystical realms. How does the unknowing agent of the phalanx impact Otherworld? In the past, we've seen the techno-organic virus have a significant impact on Limbo, with the entire realm infected prior to Inferno. Combine that with the fact that Doug and Warlock have clearly planted some seeds on Krakoa way back in the pages of House of X, maybe literally, as we saw Doug, you know, touch a plant on Krakoa and it, it kind of changes shape, taking that techno-organic vibe. And you have a Team Supreme with way more potential impact on Ten of Swords than you might initially expect. I'm very interested to see what Doug and Warlock's role is going to be. And if anyone has a chance of knowing what Krakoa thinks about all this, it's Doug. It's crucial to remember that much of Ten of Swords is about rejoining the two lands that were one, Krakoa and Arako. And I actually think it's a possible outcome that at the end of Ten of Swords, it's no longer Crack and Krakoa that I'm doing, but Obsess and Okara, and hopefully not Analyze and Arako, We'll workshop these, right? <laughs> we'll figure out the right word. Doug's inside track, plus whatever behind the scenes work he's doing with the techno-organic virus could have vast, vast implications. And again, like Doug understands Krakoa in a way that no one else does. It's, it's very plausible to me that his perspective could drive him to actions that maybe seem at odds with the rest of what mutant kind is trying to do simply because he's the only one who kind of gets it. The next named sword is the Soul Sword, which is wielded by magic. Speaking of New Mutants, Ileana Rasputin's Soul Sword is one of the most well-known mystic weapons in the Marvel Universe and forever linked to the character. In her 80s miniseries, Magic creates the Soul Sword using her own life energy and magic, and over time, anyone who wields the sword becomes the ruler of Limbo, like Ileana has been for a large stretch of her history. This may also be the easiest sword to account for, as Ileana has seemingly had it throughout the Dawn of X. One of the biggest questions I still have is how Limbo compares slash stands in contrast to the dimension of Amanth where the Arako mutants have been trapped. 
In the early stages of the buildup to this story, I theorized that these mutants were in fact trapped in limbo itself, but is seemingly now that is very much not the case. I wonder, like, could Ileana still transport some of these mutants to limbo? Does she still have sort of a demonic rule over that realm that could actually play to the advantage of the Krakoan mutants? It's also worth noting that in the past, when Ileana's been in harm or taken off the board, the armor and soul sword have transferred to Kitty, now Kate Pride. Given Kate's recent resurrection in the pages of Marauders, this could be a nice way to integrate her character into the event, which I think would be pretty appealing for a lot of fans, given that like we've finally seen her on the Quiet Council. She's on Krakoa pretty well integrated right now. Perhaps splitting the Soul Sword also could be a path to getting the Krakoa mutants their 10th sword bearer as well. Maybe it doesn't have to be Ileana taken off the board so much as somehow her bond with Kate uh, reaching out and now they have two individuals wielding, I don't know, half of the Soul Sword or some way you can make that happen to get a 10th Krakoan sword bearer in there as well. I mentioned before, but in Cable, we've seen the light of Galador pretty much since the beginning of the launch of that series, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. It's the most deliberately set up blade in Ten of Swords. You know, we see uh, a Cable find this on the Araco point in this first solo issue. He finds it in the foot of a big monster, and he's had this cool, cool sword ever since, which, of course, Galadorian Space Knights have come to reclaim because that's actually where it's from, right? Rom the Space Knight is probably the most famous of the Galadorian Space Knights, but they've also been seen in Marvel Cosmic uh, series, for example, like the Annihilator. Uh, that kind of post Dan Abnett, Andy Landing wrap up on that era of Marvel Cosmic ending the 2000s. The sword is immensely powerful and the Galadorian Space Knights plan to use it to entirely conquer Earth and create a new Galador, right? So like that's the thing about all these swords. They have all these mystical, you know, really like cosmic level powers, which make them particularly interesting. We've also seen Cable use the sword already in the issue of creation to power the transportation device that connected himself, Cyclops, and Gene to sword. Again, the anagram space station or not anagram acronym. Don't forget, too, we have Old Man Cable in the pages of Cable trapped in some red hellish dimension. Dimension. Could he be an Amanth planning for this moment? Again, like in the past, because I was thinking Amanth was essentially Limbo, that's where I thought Cable was. But it would make a lot of sense if Old Man Cable is somehow in that dimension actually working on behalf of the Krakoa mutants. I think that's an interesting angle to explore here potentially as well. Next, we move to the Unknown Swords, and at first up, we have the Starlight Sword. As far as I can tell, the Starlight Sword has not been used in Marvel before, but based on naming connections to the Starlight Citadel and Betsy Braddock's role as Captain Britain in this event, every imp implication is it will be a new sword that Betsy wields. Heading into Ten of Swords, in the pages of Excalibur, Betsy and Saturnine finally have a confrontation, and address Betsy's new standing as Captain Britain. Essentially, Saturnine is mistrusting of Betsy's mutant loyalties and how they'll compete with her own omniversal protector priorities. This is theory, but granting Betsy a Starlight Sword as part of this contest could be Saturnine's way of testing Betsy as her champion, granting her strength to ensure the protection of the Starlight Citadel. I think this is definitely like the way that Saturnine would scheme and sort of force Betsy into making a choice to protect maybe the, the omniversal side of things over the Krakoan interest. It's interesting to consider what this sword might be made of too. Considering the forging that we've seen happening in Saturnine's chambers in the free comic book day pages carried through into the creation issue, there's a possibility that the sword could be forged of extra-dimensional alien powers, much like we see Saturnine doing with the, these kind of alien entities they gather from, you know, somewhere, some when, and they make these tarot cards that allow Saturnine to actually get a read on where things are going in the future, right? If this is how this all plays out, it's interesting that Saturnine would take such a deliberate role in these proceedings. She's kind of taking a neutral tournament ringleader role at the end of creation. So arming Betsy as her champion certainly seems to put her on the apparent side of Krakoa. 
I'm not sure that Saturnine really cares who wins at the end of the day, though. So as long as they leave the Starlight Citadel and Otherworld peacefully, which suggests that one of the Arakan swords could also be of her making. I think arming both sides to continue playing the middle is definitely the exact kind of thing that Saturnine, Opal, you know, Opal Luna Saturnine would do in terms of like making it seem potentially like she's an ally to both while simultaneously really just wanting her own interest to come out at heart. But that's what I expect for the Starlight Sword. Again, based on the naming, I'd be pretty shocked if it was anything other than that. The next one is a little vaguer. We have Apocalypse with the Scarab. And before I get into any Marvel history that might con you know connect to this blade, spoiler, there's not much. I'll say I'm confident the Scarab will be a brand new addition to the Apocalypse arsenal and mythos, since Hickman and Howard are very much rebuilding Apocalypse throughout their respective and coalescing narratives. We didn't know he had a family before this event, so surely there's room for a secret sword somewhere in his past. Plus, we've seen these, you know, flashbacks of Apocalypse wielding a sword to the splitting of Krakoa and Rocco, and given the historical import of those images, I'd have to think it's going to be the same sword, likely locked away in one of his temples, probably in Egypt, for safekeeping. What will, be, what will be interesting here is what kind of mystical properties the Scarab might contain, whether it's imbued with powers and technology of the Celestials that Apocalypse has benefited from over the years, or, you know, some other way that it's actually mystical and imbued with, with again, magic and properties. This could be, you know, Teeny Howard leading to that magic elements of Excalibur actually having Apocalypse imbue this with external energy or some sort of magic that actually makes it, you know, unique as far as swords go. Now, technically, in the oversized Black Knight Exodus one-shot from 1996, in a story that manages to cover Dane Whitman, Apocalypse, Exodus, and Cersei of the Eternals, there's a mutant acolyte of Apocalypse named Scarab. Uh, while the Scarab does have strong enough skin to break Exodus's sword, the idea of the X-Office reaching back to reference this Scarab feels about as likely as a Liefeld Major X tie-in suddenly getting added to the Ten of Swords event. I do not think this Scarab will be referenced, although technically, yes, uh, this character does exist, and again, this Black Knight Exodus one-shot is kind of fascinating, if not great, in retrospect. Going back to the flashback, too, from, from House of X, consider the line, the Twilight Sword of the Enemy tore the world asunder, and what was one became two. Who is this enemy? In my very first theory video after C2E2 announcement of the event, you know, earlier in 2020, I drew connections between the language here and the Twilight Sword of Marvel's history, most famously wielded by Surtur against Asgard in Walt Simonson's classic Thor. But now that we've seen Amenth, the dimension where these demons actually come from, and some of the dimension's history in the pages of X-Men number 12, I think it's still a huge question who was actually leading this evasion and why. The implication is that it's the character Annihilation, but there's more to this than meets the eye, especially if my theory that Annihilation and Genesis may well be essentially the same person just kind of renamed and rebranded holds up you know in that case then it, it would not make any sense because genesis stood on the other side of the world with apocalypse when this twilight sword tore the world asunder so again the question stands who's wielding it and what is their goal i'm not sure we have an answer to that yet the next listed sword is the Skybreaker, which I am aligning to Storm. There's no known Skybreaker weapon that I've found, but the name has been associated with Storm before in the pages of the Greg Pak written Extreme X-Men. In the first alternate reality, the team visits Storm, aka Skybreaker, Skybreaker is a goddess and married to Thor. It'd be cool if Storm's blade was somehow forged using you know these, this alternate reality goddess energy, but I doubt the connection will be that literal. If anything, Extreme X-Men is worth revisiting because it involves tracking down evil Xaviers across reality which of course mirrors many readers' interpretations of good old Charlie X's actions in House of X. If you are convinced that Professor X is a big old evil jerk, then definitely read Extreme X-Men to see how that can manifest across a variety of alternate realities. As it stands, this gives us a pretty blank slate 
for Skybreaker. While the name does have an Asgardian ring, obviously Beta Rebuild Stormbreaker is a parallel, I'm hoping Skybreaker is forged in the Vibranium Vaults of Wakanda. This is a weird place to announce this theory, but I'm increasingly convinced that Ta-Nehisi Coates' 2021 plans for Black Panther and the X-Office's 2021 plans for Storm are going to merge into a huge storyline. I won't say what just yet, and forging this sword for her in Ten of Swords would be some fun groundwork to lay. Again, remember, like, Wakanda is not allied with Krakoa, not really out of hostility so much as they're the only nation that said, like, we don't actually need your drugs because we're Wakanda. We have the technology already. Again, the Storm Black Panther connection, though, is is one of, it's a love story throughout, you know, their, their history together that could bring these nations together in ways that will be very, very interesting, I think. There are a handful of other famous, you know, X-Swords that could have been a part of this event, but really the only one I'm kind of disappointed not to see is the Cerebro Sword, which has been built up in the pages of the Ben Percy and Joshua Kassara X-Force. Uh, it felt like some pretty deliberate setup here for the Ten of Swords event. Again, to have this sword that was made out of Cerebro, that was made, uh, you know, from fragments of the shattered Cerebro when Professor X was assassinated way back in X-Force number one. And again, given that, like, initial teaser art of Charles Xavier leading the charge with a sword. I think Professor X, in the midst of this battle with his Cerebro sword, was a really interesting and kind of tantalizing idea that is obviously just or at least not obviously, but it's seemingly not going to get tapped into. Um, we've seen, you know, the, the Cerebro sword certainly has a role to play in the pages of X-Force. It's now in the hands of uh, Mikhail Rasputin and Zeno, but we will see uh, if that actually comes up in this event. Obviously, it's not named one of the ten, so odds are less likely. But there you have it. <laughs> that's all the swords and their history. I know that's a heck of a lot. Uh, hopefully that was helpful for some of you to to get a feel for what these swords are. Obviously, I tried to weave in my theories throughout. I'm definitely curious what you all think. Uh, leave your thoughts on any of these theories or stuff you've come up with on your own in the comments. Uh, curious to hear, too, like what you think about the inclusion of these swords or any angles or things that I may have overlooked or that you might be looking forward to see in the Tennis, tennis Swords event coming up. I'm super pumped for this event, obviously, as you can probably tell. Um, but let me know what you guys all think in the comments with your theories, thoughts, and notes. <laughs> I want to hear it all from you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you can find my stuff at patreon.com slash herald for ways to support the site. Thanks to all the mysterious benefactors here that are named for your uh, particularly gracious support as well. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com, at comicbookherald, pretty much anywhere online. You can look for the best comics ever in my Marvelous Year podcast for more from me as well. So coming up next, we're going to have a Cracking Krakoa reviews, of course, of every part of the Ten of Swords event as new issues come out. And uh, and maybe next time, you know, I, some big thing drops, I'll ask uh, I'll ask you again if you want if you want a video again. I think this is probably the first video I did entirely based on Kraken Krakoa listener and commenter support. So thanks everybody who let me know you definitely wanted to hear about the history of these swords. Hopefully this lived up to your hopes and expectations for what that conversation might look like. So thanks again everybody, and as always, enjoy the comics.